Hi there. You hear behind me Tony Hatch with a piece called The Sounds of the 70s. And before that, you heard the logo music for Sun Classic Films. This was a company that churned out all these quickie doxploitation films in the 70s, like uh, In Search of Historic Jesus, lots of stuff about UFOs and Bigfoot, etc. So it's apropos for this special commission from listener Ms. Binkowitz. That's her pseudonym, and I'm sticking to it. And she commissioned the show on 70s movie music. It's a huge topic. It's going to take more than one show. But I hope you enjoy it, and I certainly hope she enjoys it. It's been a while between shows for a number of reasons. I'm not going to get into that here. Maybe I'll talk about it on an upcoming regular show. But we're going to cover as much as we can on this first special. There'll be a lot more of this on the Patreon. No, I was a kid in the 70s, and I went to a lot of movies, so I'm certainly familiar with a lot of the stuff, and certainly familiar with the vibe of the times, too. But I'm not an expert on cinema, so on these shows, I'm relying on the participation of someone who knows it because he lived it. The veteran actor Brad Dourif, who you've seen in recent years on the show Deadwood, and heard him as the voice of Chucky, the killer doll, just to name two things that he's been doing recently. But he began his film career in the 70s and worked on many of the films and with many of the directors that we'll be discussing here. Now, often when we hang out, Brad tells me these amazing tales of all these musicians he's known and worked with through the years. And I plan to have him on the show talking about that for quite a while. Never got it together. But when Ms. Binkowitz suggested this theme for her commission, it seemed like a natural to ask Brad about this and kindly lend his memories and observations to the show. So we did that. We spoke a few nights ago, and I'll be excerpting that conversation throughout these shows. It should break the monotony of my bullshit somewhat. And with that in mind, I'm going to cut most of my end of the conversation except for the bits needed for context. And, of course, there'll be a lot more of his commentary on the Patreon continuation of this as well. There's a lot of material that would suit this theme, so how do you choose it, how do you sort it, how do I categorize it? You know, do I go with uh, genres, directors, composers, or years? It's, it's kind of overwhelming, so I'm just going to go random, although some of those themes will apply to some of the sets. And so many of your favorites might be overlooked. Some real garbage is probably going to be included. And uh, let's see, well, most of the music is instrumental. Just for variety's sake, I'm going to shoehorn in some occasional vocal numbers from films of the era. And you know, a lot of movie songs can be pretty crappy. What are you going to do? And I'd like to thank two Jims, Jim Allen and Jim Knipfel, for their suggestions and thoughts about this show. It helped quite a bit. And I think I'll just begin with a semi-random set of numbers. We're going to start with a cue from the film Clute which was a big film for Jane Fonda, kind of a thriller with Donald Sutherland. You'll hear a cue from that called Skylight. The score is by Michael Small, who did other pictures like uh, Marathon Man, The Parallax View, appropriately tense and uptight kind of a score. And then speaking of genres, there was a big genre in the 70s, exploitation, And those movies usually boasted really terrific scores by 
well-known R&B and jazz performers. Got one here from Coffee, very successful Pam Greer vehicle. And the score was by Roy Ayers. And it's a kind of a sophisticated funk kind of a feel. Really nice. We'll hear the song Coffee is the Color. And then one of the great masterpieces of the 1970s was Rocky. The score was by Bill Conti. Now, a lot of people might think of Rocky as real cheese because of the ever-worsening series of sequels, but the original had a real depth to it and a downcast 70s vibe setting up the fairy tale. For instance, when you meet Stallone's character in the picture, he's a leg breaker for the mafia for Loan Shark. And as Jim Kniffel reminds me, the uh, end of the picture, even though it was a fairy tale, he loses the fight. Very important. I'll play a beautiful section called Philadelphia Morning, and maybe more later. Then I'm going to have another cue from Clute, a short one called Helicopter. And then finally, from Straw Dogs, a brutal film by Sam Peckinpah, starring Dustin Hoffman and Susan George. A piece called Dead Cat. The score was written by Jerry Fielding. He did that song called Chicken Road. That was on one of our earlier shows. Really great arranger and composer. So that'll set the stage for us. And I thank Ms. Binkowitz for her brilliant commission idea. I hope it pleases. And I welcome all of you to the cinema of the 1970s and to Buckaroo Holiday.
As I promised you earlier, our special guest is here. His name is Brad Dorf, and he's an actor, an acting legend, actually. Would you call yourself an acting legend? <laughs> it's just, it just never occurs to me to say I'm an acting legend. I've told you about the uh, things that Brad's done recently that everybody knows him for, but what we're talking about today, obviously, is the 1970s and the soundtracks of the 1970s. Brad has acted in what I consider to be two of the greatest masterpieces of that amazing era, which to me is the last golden era of, of American filmmaking. I would agree. Well, it was really, I think, brought about by a simple recording device called the Nagra, mm -hmm. which was a briefcase size tape recorder. Mm -hmm. And it replaced, it could get just as good a sound and just as good a recording as these big, huge trucks, which they had to use. So now you can take, uh, you can make a movie anywhere. Anywhere you can get a camera, you can certainly get a Nagra in and you can record. The 70s really started filmically in the late 60s in a way. Yeah. This guerrilla approach to filmmaking is what really changed things. And a lot of these student filmmakers, I guess, starting with people like Coppola and um, Martin Scorsese and people like that, yeah. really just started to come to the fore. How did you get into films? You were uh, a I was, stage actor in New York, right? Yeah, I was a stage actor, and um, I uh, I was I did a play called um, When You Coming Back, Red Rider, and I played uh, this kid, you know, who uh, did the night shift in a diner, um, and it gets overtaken by this insane hippie with a gun, and he terrorizes the diner, and I was kind of a kid who uh, who gets humiliated by him and in the end tries to kill him and, and doesn't They made that into a film, didn't they? Yes. Marjo Gortner was in it. Marjo right? Gortner yeah. played the lead in it. So you were doing that and how did that lead into films? The first one was WW and the Dixie Dance Kings. I did the part, but they couldn't use it. Oh really? Yeah, they, okay. it just stopped the movie. It was just it shouldn't have been written in the um, in in the in the movie, and they just didn't use it. But I then got uh, Milos Forman came and saw me in the play and said, I, "That's who I want to play, Billy Bibbit." So I started out doing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Quite an auspicious entree into films. You know, I mean, it's literally been downhill <laughs> ever since. What's your name, son? Bill, Bill, Billy, Bib, Bibbish. Glad to know you, Bill McMurphy's mine.
one of the most unique soundtracks I've ever heard. Now, did you know Jack Nietzsche at all? I met Jack Nietzsche a couple of times. Um, I met him after the Oscar, and I met him, and he came to Woodstock when I was here. So it was after he did the score? Yeah, at, or he was just working on it. Okay. And before it came out, he really didn't say much. I mean, I wish I could tell you something where he I know he got the idea for this mm. and that. I'll just tell you, um, you know, what I thought. I sat and watched the scene where Jack Nicholson is killed. The Indian smothers him. Right. And I, we all were just, you know, because we were there and we were all just watching. Um, and, I, you know, and I watched him die and I watched the, the arm go down. And I remember feeling like that's something. When his arm fell... That was really something. It was. It was like. Uh, it was like that. Really looked like the guy. The guy passed. Something just happened. Yeah. And. And I thought, it's probably one of the one of the times when I thought, holy fuck, they got that right. Yeah. When you hear that, and then right after, and you go, yeah, well, yeah. that's exactly what inside I knew was going to happen. Now, you were on set when that was being shot. Yeah. That must have been a strange... I, you see, you don't think of it that way. When people think about a movie being made, you think of things being shot discreetly, and you're off having a sandwich while they're doing this. You were very involved in the in the process of it, when, whether you were on, on the shot or not. It was... We all were in the... Um, well, Jack Nicholson is very much of... Uh, you know, he wants everybody involved. He likes everybody. He, you know, he wants an ensemble. He wants people to, to be very real. He tries very hard to build people up, to get people to have a sense of humor to get people to play. Right. And, um, you know, that's, you know, I, I was just young and very serious, and here this guy was, his principal thing was to crack me up in the middle of my shot, you yeah. know? Uh -huh. That's what he was trying to do. And he was right. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he should have done. You think it took some of the pomposity out of your ideas and made you yeah, more in the role? Yeah, it made me much more. It's, you have to play. You cannot not have fun, and even if it's a tragedy, even if you're doing something very difficult, and it's still play. I had dinner with Milos before we were going to work, and, and he said, look, um, I work with people with stutters, because uh, I had a stutter, my character stuttered. And he, yeah. said, he said, the thing that I always get about a stutter is the moment before they speak, they are truly brave. Because at that moment, when they try to speak, they're totally alone. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, that's what he wants. That, that must have been one of the things that made you turn the key on that character. Yeah, that one piece of, uh, uh, that one note, and the rest just came. Wow, yeah. So the film is this huge, were you nominated for that? Yes. I, I, that, that had to be crazy. It was insane, yeah. 
Was it a good crazy, or was it like, like just too weird to comprehend? Every actor, I don't care what you're saying, has gone off privately and accepted their Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You, know, yeah. you don't, you don't get to be, you know, if if you don't do that, you're not a human being. You right. Know? So you enjoyed it, thank God. Yeah. You, you oh, weren't like overwhelmed it, by the weirdness of it all. I was overwhelmed by the weirdness of it all too.
Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange from Warner Brothers is rated X. Under 17, not admitted. Ah, damn it. I was well under 17 when that picture came out. And I couldn't go see it. And I wanted to see it so badly. I was a big Kubrick fan because of 2001. I sat in the theater and watched that one three times in a row, every showing at the Sanders because they wouldn't kick you out. And I had become aware that he directed Spartacus, which I also thought was great. Everything about Clockwork Orange was perfect for me at that time, but I couldn't go because rated X. I had to content myself with a 45 of the piece you just heard, that little bit of Ludwig van as performed by Wendy Carlos, at that time, Walter Carlos, a little synthesized Ninth Symphony. And a lot of the score was classical music and conventional instrumentation with some other pop songs thrown in, singing in the rain. And what you're hearing here is Edward Elgar, also done by Carlos. But it's the thing about a lot of the films of that era, like say Louis Bunuel didn't use music in his soundtracks, so I can't play anything from any of those great pictures. This was also the era when a lot of soundtracks consisted of pop songs, American Graffiti, uh, Mean Streets, a lot of things. So a lot of films I consider important or that are just favorites are not included in the show for that reason. By the way, you're going to hear a lot more from Brad later in the show and in the follow-up shows talking about other films he's been in, other directors he's worked with, so never fear. Hey, baby, I'm here to turn you on to the most exciting dynamite action-packed movie to come your way in a long time. I'm talking about The Taking of Pelham 123. Believe it when I tell you, The Taking of Pelham 123 has audiences sitting on the edge of their seats. So if you're ready to take the ride of your life, you gotta catch The Taking of Pelham 123. Coming your way from United Artists, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Okay, well, R, that's an improvement. I can deal with R. They'll even let you in a lot of times without your parent if it's R. With X, they don't mess around, but with R, yeah. Now, getting back to Clockwork Orange, the good news is I eventually did get to see it years later, and it was everything I hoped it would be. I saw it on a double bill at one of these uh, midnight movie places called The Balcony in Huntington, New York, with some of my friends. And the other feature on the double bill was Taxi Driver. So you can imagine the mood I was in leaving that theater. Holy Moses. So we're going to hear a little something from Taxi Driver. It was a great score. It was the last score by the great Bernard Herrmann, one of the real titans of movie scoring and television scoring, great stuff for The Twilight Zone, and an early advocate for the music of Charles Ives. A lot of fondness for Bernard on a lot of levels. And along with the taking of Pelham 123, you just heard that trailer for, this is going to constitute a set of New York-based movies. Now, the Taking of Pelham 123 was a score by David Shire, who wrote the score for The Conversation, which was the inspiration for this show, because I played a piece from that soundtrack on a previous show, and Ms. Binkowitz got the idea to suggest this show. Now, it's a piano-based score, really beautiful and inspired. This is a completely different approach, which illustrates how versatile scoring composers have to be. They are working within the confines of the mood and the story, the genre, the time period of the film they're dealing with, and Shire's great at that. Behind me you hear the piece Salsation, which is part of the score for Saturday Night Fever, which of course is mostly BG songs and other people, but he supplied a few instrumental pieces to it, including this one. Again, a far cry from the conversation. Taking Pelham 123 is another smoke entirely, also. 
And this is real dissonant, brassy, edgy, urban music. You're gonna hear two cues from this score. The main title music and money montage. And then a change of mood, the great oddball picture with Joanne Woodward and George C. Scott, They Might Be Giants. And whether or not you like the band of that same name, the movie is worth seeing. And the score is by John Barry, who, of course, did the James Bond theme and had a combo that had a lot of great instrumental hits in the early 60s and did all kinds of other stuff. Then we're going to have a piece by Artie Butler. I had the great pleasure of meeting Artie Butler one night at a book release party for my friend Ken Emerson. He did a book on the Brill Building where Artie Butler was a major arranger, also went on to write a lot of hits. I mean, here I am at this party talking to this guy and I'm saying, this is the guy who arranged Sally Go Round the Roses. And if you know what I mean, like, woo, you know, minga. And he scored a bunch of pictures, including For Pete's Sake, which is notable for me because it was shot in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, as was Dog Day Afternoon, which doesn't have a score, so I can't use that. But here he is doing the score for The Love Machine. This is one of those Jackie Suzanne potboilers. Lots of high stakes wheeling and dealing and people banging each other and treachery and all that kind of shit. Real cheese, but it's a nice score. And it has musical elements that synchronize nicely with the John Barry piece before it. So, I don't know. I like that kind of thing when I'm doing these shows. And so, a suite of pieces pertaining to New York City in the 1970s, culminating in the irresistible main title music from Taxi Driver by Bernard Herrmann.
a matter of life. It's a matter of death. It's a matter of a beautiful Italian spy, seven killers, a voodoo witch doctor, a living corpse, a gorgeous double agent, 12 cars, five planes, 10 acres of land, a wedding reception, a double-decker bus, a fleet of speedboats, a sea of crocodiles, the beautiful sorceress named Solitaire, a man with a steel arm, and a retired Navy LST, all against one man. Whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds like a little bit much. I, I don't want no part of that. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't get what people see in James Bond. I never really enjoyed those movies. Now, Our Man Flint, that's something else again, but different era. Back to the 70s. Now, this show has uh, got a lot of talking in it, you know, uh, between my bullshit and Brad's uh, erudite commentary. I feel like I gotta get more music in, so I'm gonna do an extended set, mixed grill, and then after that, we're gonna hear from Brad again. So it's musically mixed and also in terms of genre. Some popular genres of the era that we'll focus on probably at different points individually in little mini sets. But here's a kind of a uh, oleo. First up is something from the midnight movie or art movie genre. Talked about that before when I went to the Balcony Theater in Huntington to see that double bill. And that became a real big thing in the 70s. People would go to these midnight movies. Some famous ones like Rocky Horror, which I will not play. Others like El Topo, which I may play some because I love the music from that movie. And I've used it before, but it's always nice to hear. Dusan Makaveev was a Yugoslavian director. Made these arty pictures that were kind of confrontational and outrageous. Dealt a lot with sexual freedom and probably all the oppressive bourgeoisie and all that is in there, you know what I mean. And Sweet Movie is one of a kind. I think Criterion put it out, so it's probably accessible. It was hard to see for a long time, but uh, worth seeking out if you have a taste for the unusual. I don't necessarily give a lot of thought to the theoretical, philosophical impulses behind some of these kind of things. But if they work as an experience, sensory experience, I'm in, why not? At least ain't like Jean-Luc Godard shoving politics down your fucking throat, you know? It's from 1974, and the musical score is by Manos Hadjidakis, composer from Greece who also gave us the scores for things like Never on Sunday, Top Capi, and this piece is called Nocturne for Two Voices. Then we're going to have the title music for Roy Budd's great score for Get Carter, nasty little film with Michael Caine from 1971. And then we move on to one of the true legends, Ennio Morricone, with a piece I'm gonna call Marcia Daily Acatoni. <laughs> it's from a movie known over here as Duck, You Sucker, with Rod Steiger and my beloved James Coburn. That was also from 1971, directed by Sergio Leone. Great partnership he had with Ennio Morricone. And then from our bicentennial year, 1976, I can still see those tall ships coming into the harbor. Me and Petey watching them, full of love for America. Anyway, a score by another legendary composer, the great, great Jerry Goldsmith. And a lot of you might know this one, it's Ave Satani from The Omen, starring Lee Remick, Gregory Peck, and Satan. And that one there might mess with your head a little bit, you know what I mean? You know, Satan, it's, this is not kid stuff. Come on now. So I'm going to lighten it up. I'm going to leave this set at the end on a, on a gentle note, on a hopeful note. 
from another one of our great 70s genres, the disaster movie. This was from, I guess, the Poseidon Adventure, right? And it's the morning after. Wait, 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 wait. It was a big radio hit for Maureen McGovern. But this is the version from the movie, and it's much more subdued, much more pleasant to listen to. I think it's really nice. So, incidentally, behind me, you're hearing some selections from the soundtrack for The Owl and the Pussycat, Barbara Streisand, George Siegel picture, comedy from 1970. Score was by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And you heard them on the Horn Rock shows, so I don't think I need to foreground it. You know what I mean? I've had enough of them. Anyhow, here is Nocturne for two voices from Sweet Movie. Love 
chance to find the sunshine Let's keep on looking for the light Oh, can't you see the morning after It's waiting right outside the storm Why don't we cross the bridge together That's safe and warm It's not too late We should be giving Only with love can we climb It's not too late Not while we're living Let's put our hands out in Let's cut it. We need to have money to get to where we're going. Don't please. I want to see you ride the range. All right. Come on. A slap level. You're a red rider. It's on the packs. What the hell's the matter with you, man? What would you do if it happened to you? When you coming back, Red Rider. Rated R. You really weren't into acting on the stage, were you? That wasn't really your original aim, or was it? I liked film the most, and um, and it's odd because, in a way, when you're doing theater, it's really much more about the actor. And the, the poet is the writer. Mm-hmm. And you're saying the words, and um, you know it's it, the the play is in your hands, the words are in your hands, and when you're on stage, it's all about you. Um, Much more like a musical performance. It's, yeah, of course, yeah. and it's ephemeral. It's the purest form of acting that there is, I think. Film is the poet is the camera, and actors are much more a thing to be used and um, played with because we can shoot all day and then they can take a tiny little part and, and cut it into the movie and uh, you know it, it may not be your best work or what yeah. you really thought it was about but it's the part they want to use right like I know Van Morrison to make the musical parallel like most people when they think about performance they think the live performance is really the thing and that an artist like Van Morrison would live for that but he always said records were what he aimed for. When he made a great record, then he felt like he really did something. So it must be kind of like that. Exactly. It's not as thrilling. Although, you know, um, as time went on, I finally sat myself down and said, you know, it's not about the final product. It's not about the end of movie anyway. It's it's that all of these people come to this set because they f- they love film. And mm. they love storytelling, something mm. really deep 
and they they love it you know if they're doing sound if they're doing if they're focus pullers if they're doing lights if they're just props you know they love it they want to make this whole thing come together and really mean something so if I go in there and I really make everybody there feel like they were oh yeah now I know why I'm here mm -hmm. because I'm really doing it that's what I take away that's mine like this show is about soundtracks and I would imagine of all the central parts of a film that contribute to its effect that's the one you have the least awareness of while you're working on it right exactly you don't know it until the film is done and they don't know it until until they've got a rough right. cut they don't know exactly what they're gonna need however there's music in writing no matter what you do and there is music when you're working when you're doing a scene, there's a rhythm, and and there yeah. is, and there is, you know, your voice sometimes it goes up here, and you what, you know, and <laughs> yeah. and and all of that stuff, and it happens naturally, mm. but it's musical, it's really really musical. And when I worked at Circle Rep, I worked the main playwright was a guy by the name of Lanford Wilson, and he wrote, oh. he wrote a show called The Hot L Baltimore, mm. and it was a symphony. That's what, that's what his intention was, is that he had an instrument for every character. And he would do, there would be, it, it took place in a hotel lobby, and there would be two people talking over here, for instance, and two people talking over, over there at the same time, but there was counterpoint going on. Yeah, yeah. And it, oddly enough, the actress always fell into it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And the right lines and so forth from different conversations would work together to make this beautiful piece of music fraught with real meaning, but it was all just people talking. Yeah, yeah. Um, Remember the big star from that was Conchata Farrell, right? She was the... Conchatty uh, Farrell, yeah. She was my roommate for years. She was, oh, okay. Yeah, Chatty and I were... She was brilliant. Oh, yeah, she was. She's been nominated for some stuff, and, you know, she had a really good career. Yeah. I mean, and she had a lot of fun, and... Yeah, and brilliant performer. Yeah, absolutely. The Seahorse, you should have seen her in that. Now, when you talk about the, the rhythm that you're working on in a, in a film, uh, have there been times when you've seen the finished film and you feel like the editing or the soundtrack specifically to this show blew it or, or made it, you know, one or the other, where it was like, God, they got it, or God, that, I, this isn't what I expected? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've done probably 200 films, man, and I've done some real garbage. Mm. I've walked away from scenes and going, that's not it. There's no rhythm. There was no no real play. There was no... We were saying our lines, you know, I have that feeling. And has cutting ruined things? Generally not. Yeah. I mean, generally, you have a lot of time when you're editing. And so you can really try a lot of different things. And rhythm is extremely important. Um, and uh, I know that scenes get improved sure. rhythmically by, um, and and generally yeah. most most of the time not in a, uh, in a bad way. Although I'm sure I've seen it. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world, a world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one hope. The only hope.
The Exorcist. Warner Brothers presents William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Spooky, right? Yeah. You ain't heard nothing yet. Now, Brad will be back later. He has a lot more to say about a lot of the movies he's made, directors he's worked with. So keep it right here on Buckaroo Holiday. So you know that music behind me. It is from The Exorcist. It's Mike Oldfield. You can look up Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells. But I'm more interested right now in the music by Jack Nietzsche that comprises the rest of the soundtrack. We talked about him a little bit before when Brad and I talked about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Again, his score for The Exorcist is unique, very minimalistic and dark, of course. He first got known as the arranger for Phil Spector. I think he was responsible for a lot of the really great Phil Spector records. And later on, he worked with Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield. He did Expecting to Fly, that amazing arrangement for that. And then he played with Neil Young and the Stray Gators and worked with the Stones and a lot of people. And he also wrote a great orchestral piece called St. Giles Cripplegate, well worth checking into. And why not let's have a set of horror movie music? It's a great era for horror movies because the variety of kinds of horror movies became greater. It wasn't just the hammer monsters or the universal monsters or these big giant creatures from space or whatever the fuck. There was a lot more of this satanic stuff and gory stuff, deep psychological horror, and classic hammer and universal monsters and giant creatures from space too. Naturally, these kind of themes, these extreme themes, bring out a lot of creativity in composers when they want to up the ante in these highly emotional, highly unusual circumstances. Cool things happen. What I'm going to do with this one is I'm just going to kind of make a suite out of a bunch of different cues from different movies. I hope that meets with your approval. So here's what's coming from 1979, Phantasm, scored by Fred Myro. Then going back to 1970, Exotica legend Les Baxter with his theme from the Dunwich Horror. Then a little bit of your Exorcist there from Jack Nietzsche. And some more Bernard Herrmann from his score for Brian De Palma's Sisters, 1972. Another one from Jerry Fielding from the soundtrack to Demon Seed. Really creepy Julie Christie vehicle from 1977. I'm not naming all these cues, I'm sorry for that, but that one I gotta name is called Probed and Put to Bed. And who among us hasn't experienced that, for better or worse? Then we get a little chunk of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Never quite saw anything like it when I sat in a theater for that one. I saw it with my mother. We were both a little rattled by it. (laughs) Music by Toby Hooper, actually, the director and I think a guy named Wayne Bell. And then finally, Artie Kane from the movie The Eyes of Laura Mars, 1978. Enjoy your horror montage. Thank you. 
This movie you did, I wanted to bring up because we're going to be playing a track from it. Like, one of the things about this show is that it's all music, you know, it's mm -hmm. all scoring, and there isn't a lot of singing, so I'm going to stick in songs throughout it just to keep it like one of my regular shows. And sometimes that, that means shoehorning something in. So I, there's a film called The Eyes of Laura Mars. And, there, and part of the soundtrack is a KC and a Sunshine Band song that I'm going to play. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about this movie. I, I, I remember when it was out, and I remember Faye Dunaway was in it. Um, I had a really great time doing that, but I was, you know, a kid. And uh, I had a, a hotel room in the Navarro, and I would go to tracks. You know, when I wasn't working, and what's tracks? Tracks is a is a is was a rock and roll uh, club. The shoot, shoot was in. Oh, on fuck, this I remember tracks actually. Yeah, of course. It was All like right. a. It was like a. So and, and a lot of I times. I saw the average white band at tracks. Yeah. The, <laughs> so, so a lot of times the, the the band would come home and play in my hotel room, <laughs> and and people would move. I mean, in those Such days, who, it's, a, it's a real rock and roll hotel, <laughs> and no, they would just the move people. Be having, they would move people from my floor to an another floor, you know, if they were complaining and they would just let us play all night. <laughs> and, um, and, and I, you know, it was like a real New York fun time. And um, the movie, we, I, we got a bit of an ensemble. It, it did well. It did well. We had, you know, there were, the actors were good. The work in it was solidly good. You know, Faye Dunaway is, Herbert Bergdorf had the same thing. Um, there's like a, a tiny something, they have a life in them that's a tiny, fragile, vibrating thing that all of a sudden you... A filament? A filament, like almost inside them, that you suddenly hook onto, and when you do, it's magic. I mean, you're flying. Mm -hmm. And she has that. She really has that. She's, uh, you know, I mean, she was wildly beautiful, but she was a way better actress than I think than people um, often give her credit I think for. so, too. Come on, you think I was actually going to play the whole Casey and the Sunshine Band song? Come on, what do you take me for? <laughs> we saved those for New Year's Eve. This is about movie music, for God's sake. I'm not really missing the vocal stuff too much on this one. I mean, there's some of them here, as you've heard, but I thought I would have to stick a lot more of them in there to make the show uh, more well-rounded. But I don't feel like I need to. I just need to play lots of it. Because um, I don't know if I told this story on the show before. TFAB will tell me if I did. But at the risk of being redundant, some years ago I was at the Museum of Television and Radio. Now it's called the Paley Center. But at that time it was a place you had to go to because there was no YouTube. And they had this vast archive of old television broadcasts, news specials, music specials, dramas, every, all kinds of stuff. But you actually had to go there and sit at a little monitor and call them up like at a library. And I did a search on John Cassavetes, and I found an episode of The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder. And the guests were John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins. And they talked about how happy they were to finally have enough of a budget 
to hire an orchestra for Bo Harwood, who was the sound guy on all their movies and scored all of them, usually with like a guitar and a kazoo. But they actually had Tom Snyder dim the lights on the show and they sat in the dark for about five minutes while they played some of the score from Opening Night, which is a wonderful film, an unnerving, kind of horrific film from 1977. If you haven't seen it, do so. I purchased a collection of music from Cassavetti's movies directly from Bo Harwood. And here are two of his beautiful cues from Opening Night, The Grandeur of the Theater and Dorothy and Manny's Suite.
Get off the barn. Get on the wall. What's my name? Popeye Doyle. If he doesn't like you, he'll take you apart. And it's all perfectly legal because Doyle fights dirty. You want to take a ride there, fat man? And plays rough. Anybody want a milkshake? Doyle is bad news, but he's a good cop. French Connection.
two pieces from a soundtrack that I just think is fantastic. French Connection by the composer Don Ellis. He was a trumpet player, band leader. He'd worked with people like Eric Dolphy and Charles Mingus, Jackie Bayard, Paul Blay. So kind of avant-garde leanings. And he brought that, obviously, to the screen. He did that score, and I think he did the 7-ups. I'm not sure if he did any other scores, but everything on the French Connection score is just killer. It's really worth taking a listen to. And it was a picture that really impacted me as a kid. Man, the chase scene in that thing was uh, one foot of books. One foot of books. Now, at this point, there's been a lot of this atmospheric stuff, the horror stuff, the dissonant jazz of Don Ellis. And I just want to play some pretty stuff. Just nice score music. And I'm going to hit a couple of different movies, do another little mini medley here of some cues. I'm going to start with another one from David Shire. Farewell, My Lovely, 1975, the Philip Marlowe tale starring Bob Mitchum. Yeah, I call him Bob Mitchum because me and Bob Mitchum are like that. We go way back. And this is Marlowe's theme. David Shire gets a great throwback feel to this. It's definitely contemporary, but it also is definitely noir. Another Mitchum film I want to hit is uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Great film about a crappy city called Boston. And um, that'll probably be on the next one on the Patreon show because I'm not going to have time today for that one. But after Marlowe's theme, I'm going to play something by Fred Carlin. Wrote a lot of TV music and film music. This was from his score for Lovers and Other Strangers. Romantic comedy that for me really epitomizes the 70s. It's even full of like great 70s actors. Uh, Bob Dishy and uh, Richard Castellano, um, Bonnie Bedelia. And it stars Renee Taylor and Joseph Bologna, who are a very 70s couple. <laughs> the Carpenter song, For All We Know, came from that movie. And this has that same kind of feel. The sound of this thing catapults me right back to the early 70s. It really gets it. And it was pretty influential because most of the TV theme music from then on through the 70s copped this sound well into the 80s. You'll see you'll hear what I mean. It's just they all sounded like this or tried to. Good stuff. Then uh, I'm going to go to something. And then a piece that I just think is beautiful and striking by Mikis Theodorakis. He had done Gisorba the Greek back in the 60s, and he wrote this piece of music for Serpico, hugely popular Al Pacino picture. This is a sweet and sour piece called Disillusion. By the way, behind me, you're hearing a piece of library music from Italy, Una Storia Sentimentale, number two. Yeah, library music figures in too. It was used in things, not just porno, and I'll get to those, but again, probably not till the next show. Anyway, let's get started. David Shire with Marlowe's theme from Farewell, My Lovely.
taken a lot of the great ones. Hank Williams, Buddy Holly, Otis Redding, Janice, Jimi Hendrix, Elvis. It's a damn impossible way of life. You were friends with members of the band. Yes. And uh, the last waltz, Martin Scorsese did, I think, in 79 or yeah, so. Yeah, I was there, yeah. You were at the concert. Yeah. That must have been like an amazing fucking night. Oh, it was. It really was. So you're you're in a level with these people that me and my listeners wouldn't be like, oh, my God, it's Neil Young. Here's Dr. John. Here's so-and-so. I was close friends with Paul Butterfield, and I met Neil Young. But I was starstruck beyond belief. I was literally mute. With Neil Young? Or? When I met Neil Young, yeah. I just went, you know, because I mean, you know, I paced around my, you know, my room listening to certain Neil Young songs over and over and over again because it, I liked how it made me feel. And then he was like in front of me and I didn't know what the hell to say to the right. guy. And Was he the one who was most uh, amazing to you that night or the one you were yeah. most like struck by? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's like somebody it's he's somebody else to me and I didn't know how strongly I felt about Neil Young until that moment. Mm -hmm. And Paul saw it and he said, uh, "Neil Brad's deaf and dumb." <laughs> <laughs> and Neil went, "Oh, yeah, and I didn't know what to say at that point. I was embarrassed beyond so you belief. Just shut up. I just completely <laughs> shut up. He said, "But he can read your lips." And he said, "Oh, so, so you can read my lips." And I, I went, "Yeah." I said, "You know." And then he got so embarrassed. He said, "Far out, man. Far out. Far out." And he kind of <laughs> far outed himself across the room, and 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 that threw was... himself far out of the problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's how I met Neil Young. Was that performed like a concert, or was it performed, yeah, it was like, performed. A it was performed like, like a movie? Because like with retakes, like uh, I blew yes. it to the number no. again. No, no, they didn't need to do that because they had rehearsed it and they were ready. Okay. And you know, I mean, there were things like uh, there was cocaine coming out of somebody's, and they had to like spend time editing that yeah, out. I think Neil had a big cokey booger. I forgot yeah. who it was, but somebody did, and that was there was a lot of talk about that. Who was the best performer that night, in your memory of it? Uh, Van Morrison and uh, Richard Manuel. Ah, Richard Manuel. He was like a fucking winner, wasn't he? I mean, there weren't many people like Richard Manuel. I think of all the brilliance that was in the band, he was the guy that like gets me as a. Well, he has this this voice. Yeah. I mean, he had the voice of the band. He had the voice. Now, I would say, I would say, Levon Helm had something. Levon Helm was the best storyteller I've ever met. I mean, this guy actually sat down and, and was talking about his favorite W.C. Fields movie. Mm -hmm. And he described the whole movie from beginning to end. And it was like an hour and a half later, about as long as the movie. Right. <laughs> and he walked out of the room and I looked at the clock and I went, did that just happen? Mm -hmm. Did this guy enthrall me for an hour and a half, telling me a movie I'd already seen, shot by shot, and I was completely like enthralled. Yeah, just this. I mean, that is really something. Huh? But, but if you listen to him sing, 
he is with the story like nobody else. Yeah. I mean, he is, you know, the cold, hard steel on the railroad, on the railroad when you're listening for the train. I mean, you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And when he does like these old Appalachian uh, ballads, there's nobody, there's nobody sings them like he does. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's extraordinary. I, I I mean, I one of the most magical experiences of my life was seeing him and his daughter doing a duet, singing a, singing one of those songs. Yeah. It was just so beautiful. I mean, you can't. I can't describe how I felt. Wow. Well, I met him the one time uh, when I was doing an article for the Post, and he just—I don't know—he just had it. It was just—it was just a thing that was just. Oh, I mean, I when I saw him uh, last time I saw him play, he was like pre-run down. He, you know, he'd had cancer several times, and he was practically—I don't know how he got to the drums. He looked so weak. Yeah. And and I thought, oh shit. And. And then it was like one, two, three, and you know how he hits the snare, the you know the rim of the snare. Yeah, it's he like just a bomb. like he, bam. That's what he did. Yeah. And from that moment on, you never seen anybody more alive. Wow. I mean, you know, and he looks at everybody on the thing, and it's all about what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's adding his, but he's he's right there with, yeah. with. I mean, he is the real deal. He's one of the best musicians I've ever seen in terms of what he does. And Richard Manuel too. I mean, Richard Manuel was like, I mean, when they sang Turalura, it was just like heartbreaking. I mean, it was just like that was it. Yeah. Was everybody at that show uh, industry people, or was it was there an actual like? Audience. There was an audience. I mean, I was backstage, but there, there was, there was an audience. Because it seemed to me that it would be like a real specialty crowd, but they, they just had their fans there. Yeah, they had. You know, people paid a lot of money, I think, for those tickets. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine. But it was, um, it was. um, You know, I watched the band. They were. I never saw any rock and roll band that was better than them by any stretch. They may have been the best band of my era. I could see that. You know, people saying like Ave to them because they fucking Dylan did. He knew enough. And they really understood where rock and roll came from. There's a talk well, on the of, last they, waltz. They've kind of been there the whole time. Yeah, way. they had. And the last waltz, there's a conversation between uh, Robbie Robinson and, um, and, and Levon. I was there when they were saying it was on the porch and that is one of the best conversations I've ever heard about rock and roll. They just talked about where it came from. They talked about the revival tents mm-hmm. and how and how blues players got infested with this thing and this new sound came up and you know it was Delta. It came yeah, yeah. right out of the Delta and it was deeply American and very originally American. When you hear those guys talking about it because they did use some of that stuff in the movie. Though. Yeah. It's just so they're so lit up by it. Yeah. Well, they knew it. They saw yeah. it. Yeah. You know, they you know they They're were talking, talking about, about Elvis Presley's shimmy. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the laying on of yeah. hands, and when you, you shake and, and yeah, right. because of the spirits, like, like so, snake handlers or something. Yeah, that's rock and roll. That's where rock and roll came from. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe from Greece to glitter. Wow! And beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it. 
the girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you weren't working just to survive. B. Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. Shine on lightning The days are long and the nights are frightening Nothing matters anyway And that's the hell of it Winter comes and the winds blow colder Well some go wiser You just grew older You never listened anyway And that's the hell of it Good for nothing, bad in bed Nobody likes you and you're better off dead Goodbye, goodbye We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye Born defeated, died in vain Super destructive, you were hooked on pain And though your music lingers on All of us are glad you're gone If I could live my life half as worthlessly as you I'm convinced that I'll wind up burning too Love yourself as you love no one Be no man's fool and be no man's brother We're all born to die alone You know that's the hell of it Life's a game where they're bound to beat you And time's a trick they can turn to cheat you And we only wasted anyway That's the hell of it Good for nothing, bad in bed Nobody liked you and you're better off dead Goodbye, goodbye We've all come to say goodbye, 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 goodbye Born defeated, died in vain Super destructive, you were hooked on pain Though your music lingers on Well, all of us are glad you're gone Yeah, I had to have something on here from Phantom of the Paradise because it's such an unusual picture. And I've told you before about my great personal fondness for Paul Williams. That was the closing credits music from the Phantom of the Paradise. Brian De Palma picture from 1974. Now, I've been getting some calls while we're doing this show and people are making requests and Got a bunch of requests for a genre you don't hear too much about these days. It's um, non-consensual anal sex scenes. I know, I, I know. I was taken aback too, but this is uh, the voice of the people. So I'll, I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of those. Needless to say, Deliverance is going to figure in there where Ned Beatty got it from the Rednecks. Eric Weisberg and Marshall Brickman doing a number called Buffalo Gals. Not the famous dueling banjos. Nah, you don't need that, but... In the same vein, you know, bluegrass. But you know, non-consensual anal sex isn't only for hillbillies and hayseeds. It's practiced in the most posh quarters of Europe. 
And unfortunately, for humor's sake, this is actually a crime that was committed here by Marlon Brando and the director Bernardo Bertolucci in the making of Last Tango in Paris. You can read about it elsewhere if you want to hear the ugly details. But it's beautiful music by Gatto Barbieri. And we'll finish the set with the end theme from Scarecrow, Gene Hackman Al Pacino movie. The relevant scene traumatized my young eyes in 1973. Scored by Fred Myro. So here we go, it's just music, so unclench and enjoy.
So don't let anybody tell you Buckaroo Holiday is just your ordinary fake radio show. Who else would have a sub-theme like that, right? And that being the closing music from Scarecrow is appropriate because we're at the end of the show. And there's so much more to get to, as I said so many times during the show. There's going to be a lot more music from this amazing era for motion pictures. Haven't hit on a lot of the foreign movies, haven't hit on a lot of the genres. Some of my favorite pieces. And I know you want to hear more from Brad. Go ahead, ask me a question. Why, thanks, Brad. I appreciate it, and I will on the next show. We're going to talk about one of my favorite pictures, Wise Blood, that Brad starred in. His working experience with David Lynch, Werner Herzog, Milos Forman. So much else to cover. Okay, so um, I'm talking. Indeed you are, Brad. And he'll be talking on the Patreon. So if you're a member, you got that to look forward to. If you're not a member, then join it. And if you don't like it, quit it. What else can I tell you? Many, many thanks to Ms. Binkowitz for this commission. I'm loving it, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. Same goes for the rest of y'all. I'll send you off with the music you hear behind me. It's the closing theme from Robin and Marion. A Richard Lester movie from 1976 with Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn with music by John Barry. By the way, if you have any special requests for the next show, some favorites you want me to touch on, let me know. Thank you for coming to the show here at Buckaroo Holiday. <laughs>